Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows insight and focus. One party discusses God. One party discusses darkness. One party promotes God. One party eliminates God. Symbolism will be their downfall. The great deceivers. Welcome to the digital battlefield. Together we win. You have been selected to help serve your country. Never retreat from the battlefield. Twitter, Facebook, etc. Use other platforms as a form of centralized command and control. Organize and connect. Source meme material. (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. Source meme material from Battlefield. (laughs) Okay. Source meme material. Source meme material from Battlefield and or Garage. Highlight and share. Take and drop. Mission one. Dispute propaganda push through posting of research and facts. Mission two. Support role of other digital soldiers. One falls, another stands. Mission three. Guide others through use of facts and memes. Decouple MSDNC control of InfoStream. Ask counter questions to initiate thought versus echo of MSDNC propaganda. Mission four, learn use of camouflage digitally. Primary account suspended, terminated, use of secondary. Mission five, identify strengths slash weaknesses, personal and designated targets regarding Twitter and Facebook. Example, regarding meme failures to read through use of algo, dependence on person-to-person capture, I can't. I'm going to skip this one. No, no, no. That's perfect. We want the the (laughs) absolutely inane, incomprehensible Okay. Mission five. Identify strengths slash weaknesses, personal and designated targets regarding Twitter and Facebook and other. Example, regarding memes failure to read through use of algorithm. Dependence on person-to-person capture. Game theory. Information warfare. Welcome to the digital battlefield. Together we win. You. What you just heard is the preface to Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> what you just heard is a couple drops from Q, the internet persona of sorts, which has been behind an enormously popular conspiracy theory, alleging a number of things that we'll get into. But last week you heard us a recite from Lincoln's Lyceum speech and the week before a passage from Plato's Republic. So we're trying to keep a very solid level, a solid, consistent level of the highest points of human literature. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's going to be the topic of this week's discussion. We're going to be talking about, we've been talking about myth and politics. And last week we talked about the history of American political myth and the contemporary challenges that American political myth faces and sort of what our options are going forward. And we concluded in that episode that really, if you want to save 
some sort of unifying narrative that can draw together the American public into a social relationship which allows a practicable level of democracy and consensus. You have two options, which are fight a war internally or externally to settle the question or rally people around a particular idea, or you can reinvigorate policy to reinvigorate freedom and equality such that the myth of American freedom and equality as a defining narrative of our government and our principles appears believable again. But in the meantime, once myths are questioned and there's an uncertainty about a unifying narrative, until that's settled, different ideas are going to come into the mix trying to fill mm -hmm. that void of a narrative for people about, about politics and their place in the world. In the vacuum of American political myth, we've seen one example has been particularly influential in the past half decade of politics, right? perhaps longer, but especially the past half decade. That was took a number of different forms, but today has sort of morphed into one thing which we would know of as the QAnon conspiracy theory right. and conspiracy theorists. And this is what we're going to be talking about this week. And that's why is because you see in America a particular sort of vacuum for a political narrative or myth. And one of the things filling it is, is QAnon. So it's worth talking about in that context. Right. Today. Or phrased another way, a, a retreat to fantasy in yeah. the absence or in the apparent decline of the essential American narrative. And I think the first thing that we want to do is briefly sort of reconstruct what the heck the Q story is. I think probably most people who are even tangentially attuned to what's going on in politics know what, you know, vaguely what Q is, but I think it serves just to get a quick baseline. And I think starting before the emergence of the, you know, Q myth as the Q myth, you begin with sort of its antecedents, right, which I think come along with someone like Alex Jones or just general like New World Order, Illuminati type conspiracy theories about a cabal that controls the world. Following from that, during the course of the 2016 election with the candidacy of Hillary Clinton and the scandal over her emails, I think you start to develop more. The, the, it starts to take a very specific political form that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are part of a cabal that is abusing children, yep. um, molesting them and drinking their blood to like, sacrificing them. Yeah, to like Satan. Yeah, for yeah, and a lot of this comes out of the uh, WikiLeaks scandal or WikiLeaks event that took place in the weeks leading up to the 2016 election, where the emails of Hillary Clinton's campaign manager John Podesta were leaked by WikiLeaks, and people read into them that there was this whole thing going on. It turned into what we read, Pizzagate. You probably remember when a guy with armed with an assault rifle drove all the way up from, I believe, North Carolina believing that in the basement of a pizza parlor, a comet ping pong in DC, in the basement, Democratic Party political elites were abusing children. And I think he, he scared the living heck out of a lot of people when he came in with assault rifle, obviously. And that was a pretty great, there was a, there became, I think, through the internet, there emerged this belief that there was a cabal that was abusing children that was running the world and that somehow was tied to Hillary Clinton and that Donald Trump in particular stood in the way of it. And after Donald yep. Trump was, so yeah, after Donald Trump was elected about, I don't know, like nine months after he was elected or some, something, some, something to the tune of that posts on 
I believe it was 4chan. It might've been 8chan. It's migrated across different like weird corners of the internet. Posts started emerging from someone calling themselves Q. Sort of was posing, I think, as someone from, or a group of people from the national security intelligence apparatus embedded in the state doing battle against this cabal of globalist elites who are not only abusing children, but are controlling the world and are are basically responsible for everything that's gone wrong in America in the past several decades. And that went on, right? Obviously, we've seen that 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 sort of went on for most of Trump's presidency. There was this belief that Trump was somehow fighting against these people, that there was that he was, you know, building a, a case against this cabal and was going to, there were sealed indictments um, of these people they were going to, that he was going to deliver, arrest them, write the country, maybe even execute them, explicitly execute them and put the country on the right track. Yeah. And a lot of people were taken in by this and we'll talk about it a little bit more. You know, some of them were like weirdos on the internet, but a lot of them were also like eminently normal people because this stuff got moved from or made its way through the internet out of these weird messages out of the weird message boards onto facebook Facebook, where i think a lot of older trump supporters also were were very much taken in by it yeah and so there's a pretty wide swath of people who believed it trump himself sort of winked and nodded towards those people without ever explicitly you know endorsing their theories but i think being trump recognized that there was an electoral advantage for him and they liked him so he liked them which seems to be you know just about how his mind works and not not much more complicated than that i don't want to say it wasn't mainstream because it was kind of like pretty powerful within i think you know the republican party base but i think it also sort of dovetailed with fraud allegations during the 2020 election, right? I don't think the the, the conspiracy theories about the election were n- are not the same as the Q stories, but I think they, they share structural elements. And I think that for a lot of, that was sort of the mainstreaming of parts of the Q myth, right? Which is that there's this Democratic Party conspiracy that has engineered this electoral fraud. And that also that Donald Trump had these like tricks up his sleeve, right? Somehow he was going to expose them all. He was baiting them into it and he was going to show them that he was going to show the world that they had all cheated in the election. Yeah. Um, and that got mainstream. You got people like Dave Rubin, who's like a you know right-wing political commentator who's saying, you know, I, I bet that Trump's got something hidden up his sleeve here. He wouldn't, he's too smart. He wouldn't be doing this. He wouldn't be playing this game of denying the election if he didn't have something. He's got evidence, you know, he's going to, and he's going to flip all, all, flip it all, flip the script on them at the last second. And he's going to show us all. And there was basically, I believe, which culminated as we all remember in the January 6th insurrection, which we know had a lot of Q believers as well yeah. as probably more, again, like, you know, more normal type people. Norm, I don't know how you can call those insurrectionists normal people. They're crazy. But I think there's, you see how the, how the, the, the totally fantastical Q myth becomes, and I don't want to say reality-based because the electoral fraud stories were not yeah. reality-based, but in a way that it, it is more, I guess the word is mainstream, but yeah. it turns into that. And especially, I think you see the, the, the transferring of the structural elements of the Q story over to this electoral fraud story, which was picked up by the mainstream right-wing media. Fox News mainly is what I'm talking about here. So, and then that, and that had all of its own weird, complex theories about ballots being set on fire and dropped and pit ditches and stuff like that, that it was all coming from strange corners of the internet. Yeah. But then stuff moves from these strange corners of the internet to, you know, Facebook and then onto your TV station on Fox News. So that's sort of, that's the summary, I guess, of how Q started, how we got to where we are. It's also worth pointing out that I think Q has stopped posting since, yeah. pretty much since the January 6th insurrection, maybe because Q is feeling some you know, fear of the, you know, that, that the law could come down on 
them. You know, the person who's posting is Q. There's no Q. But it's sort of stopped. Maybe it's sort of morphed into new things. The conspiracy theories are still there. You can see them. Yeah. But I don't think there's this individual or group of people making these posts at the same, you know, in the same way. But there's still there are still believers. Lynn Wood, Michael Flynn, people in the, you know, the the craziest elements of Donald Trump's posse. My, um, Michael Flynn, who is one time national security advisor to oh God, president. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Who oh is God. now touring the country, going to events to uh, get paid big speaking fees to talk about how real Q is and how the storm is coming and Donald yeah. Trump is going to return to the White House. Yeah, and actually I want to pick up on that as that Q is defined by these like weird phrases that are sort of prophetic, right? Like the, the storm is coming, watch, like, please enjoy the show. And like there's weird things that are like sort of apocalyptic rhetoric that he likes to sign off with. And that sort of goes to our, to our so the next thing that we wanted to talk about, if you wanted to sort of run with that, Philip, is sort of Q, its relationship to the you know, sort of structure of myth as we've been discussing it. Yeah, so as we were saying, there's ways in which Q stands as sort of a reaction against, from these people who believe in it, a reaction against a belief that America has somehow lost its way. And it poses itself as another sort of myth, as substitute to sort of guide the political life of its adherents. Right. And in a lot of ways, it shares a lot of similarities with what you might expect out of a religion in the way that it's structured and its beliefs are structured. I mean, for one, there is a strong popularity among particularly evangelical Christian groups. I mean, you heard in the Q drop that we read at the beginning of this episode, all this stuff about God and how God will triumph and all these things. It has a very strong religious appeal. Yeah, it's, it's like kind people. of like a Christian millenarianism, right? Which is the belief that through revelation, there's fundamental transformations of society that are coming, right? And that's what Q sort of promises. That yeah. It's coming. It's like the people who believe that the, re- you know, the revelation is going to happen this day or that day. Yeah, yeah. And also it has this sort of emphasis on Donald Trump as almost a messianic figure. Right. Who's going to save America and save the patriots of America from the abuses of an anti-American or globalist elite, right? Or the forces of evil, mm-hmm. really. And that he's doing this sort of at sacrifice to himself, almost like a Christ-like figure. I also wanted to point out that these Q drops are poured over by individuals, sometimes very famous, not very famous, but famous within the Q community. There are people who are like who are self-appointed interpreters. And there's kind of a strange similarity to hadith in the Muslim religion where the, you know, actions of, of the Prophet Muhammad or sayings of the Prophet Muhammad are interpreted as, I guess, canonical. And I'm and when I'm making this comparison, when Philip was making a comparison to evangelical Christianity, we don't mean to say that it's the same thing or that these things are on the level of Q. In fact, it's quite the opposite, that these world religions, which contain profound and maybe even timeless wisdom, are being, in some ways in the United States, especially evangelical Christianity, are being s- substituted for by this, I mean, a pretty shallow new set of myths and, and canonical texts. And, and I'm, when I say shallow, I, I mean that very seriously. I, I, this morning, I was going through a reading through a bunch of the Q-drops, and it's not very, it's, it was underwhelming. It was like generally like pretty underwhelming stuff. It's like weird Facebook like... posts from some crazy person in your neighborhood. Yeah, it's like a combination of like like pretty dry, boring patriotism, boomer Facebook memes, and then just like alleg- like wild allegations that yeah know, that that every that every Democratic Party official is a pedophile. It's not it's not interesting or profound stuff, but it is interesting that it seems to touch the same chord in people that 
again, these eminently profound world religions also have had. So it has that religious effect, I think is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And then I also wanted to bring in this element of, we talked about this in our first episode on myths, is that myths sort of engender social cooperation, have the, have the potential to facilitate social cooperation, give people a purpose and a goal as to what they're doing. And just today, we're recording this on, on a Thursday, but literally just today, uh, a report from the investigative organization ProPublica dropped that was about how at the county level and precinct level for elections in, across the United States, so very local stuff, these Republicans have taken up, many of who are believers in the Q story, have taken up the cause of becoming very involved in precinct level electoral politics. And that's come from, according to the ProPublica report, basically from motivation um, by Steve Bannon on his War Room podcast, which is one of crazily enough, one of the most listened to podcasts, not that crazy, you should expect it these days, but one of the most listened to podcasts. So you've got these people who are animated by this belief, not necessarily coordinating directly with each other, but are effectively undergoing a kind of social cooperation to transform like local level electoral politics, which could have tremendous effects in future elections. That sort of low level organizing really matters. Yeah, I think whatever else you think of Steve Bannon, I don't think he's as savvy as he thinks he is, but I think he is a fairly savvy guy and he's aware of that of that sort of mechanism of politics. And so yeah. you see how this this story, this myth, this narrative has engendered a kind of social cooperation between its adherents. Um, they're not all Q people, but they're all they do believe in this level of this electoral fraud, this story, and it has engendered in them a, the kind of social cooperation and kind of collective purpose to actually take political action. Yeah. Um, which should disturb you, but I think it also goes to the points that we were discussing in previous episodes about how myth does engender that kind of social cooperation. Right, right. And I think that you can see the motivation for a lot of this is, as we've said a few times, but just to get into it a little more deeply, tied to this feeling that America has in some way lost its way, Mm -hmm. that American virtue has eroded or something like that. And I think in many ways you can tie that to the fact that there are more criticisms of American myth today, public criticisms of American myth today and the American political narrative today than perhaps in the past or perhaps in recent past. And you can view Q as a sort of reactionary response to these challenges, which similarly believe in a loss of this myth yeah but which instead of asserting some new way forward right like some of these criticisms we've seen today do some new way forward for american politics they basically embrace this sort of paranoia Mm -hmm. about this situation and a desire to in a way go Back to some imagined virtuous past of America where we didn't have these problems. Right. I mean, in talking about just linking it specifically back to last episode, our discussion of a series of American myths, there's sort of a belief that the essential nature of the country, the narrative, maybe we can talk, maybe it's some elements that are the creedal myth. Some of elements are maybe the more covenantal, more Protestant oriented aspect of the myth. Maybe there you can see the connections with some sort of evangelical 
Christianity, but a belief in a sort of essential virtuous character of the American regime, which has been compromised mainly, I think, by demographic change or the fear-mongering about demographic change. Yeah. So you see how immig- the, the role that immigration played in the ascendancy of Donald Trump, and then you see it sort of manifest. And as I think another interesting, last week we talked about the 1776 report, and that sort of, to me, feels like a kind of more highbrow, defensive American myth. But I think that in practice, you're not going to get, that's not what you're going to get. You're as likely to get something as deranged as Q as you are to get, I mean, like how many of the people who are into the Q stuff are reading the 1776 report and saying, yes, this is right. This is us. I mean, there's some areas of agreement, but the highbrow stuff I think is actually not so appealing to the kind of like volt type group of people that are that are really into it and it's also worth pointing out um right there's discussion of like oh this white working class they've seen that they've had their way of life destroyed that may be true for some of them but i think it's also worth pointing out that a lot of the people who were there on january 6th yeah a lot of the people who are into the q stuff relatively wealthy sort of provincial elites so people who have a lot of money in small towns in America, in the American countryside, and also probably in cities, as well as like strange like incels who you know spend a lot of time on 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 like 4chan and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So you know it's a mix of people, but I think it is worth pointing out that this is not necessarily a group of like impoverished workers who have nothing else to turn to. This is a group of people who I think are very afraid of demographic change, very afraid of losing their privilege. Not that they consciously acknowledge their privilege, but they're afraid, uh, they're, you know, subconsciously, I think, afraid of losing that privilege. And they are, you know, just put it out there, they're pretty racist. And they're, and and I think that demographic change is motivating a lot of fear about like the loss of this essential virtuous American power. Yeah. And I think perhaps you can see in some way, this reaction is strongest among particularly evangelicals for one community for reasons that if you listen to our last episode of Bird's Eye may be obvious mm-hmm. that America's original myth that we first talk about, the covenantal myth, mm-hmm. this belief that America is a holy land given to given to the Puritans by God, and it's for these European, later white, religious chosen people. The cue, and this may be a reason why 1776 report doesn't hold because even the 1776 report if it even if it doesn't confront as forcefully as it's going to need to 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 be meaningful it doesn't Mm -hmm. confront the failings of american myth in the past in terms of racism and sexism and all kinds of exclusion from the myth one of the reasons that the 1776 report might not be quite as appealing as q is it doesn't appeal to the same chosen people narrative that the covenant does right and this is something that that covenantal myth of america makes intuitive sense why that would be particularly popular among evangelicals this belief that america is for a chosen virtuous people Mm -hmm. and which is white and european shares this ancestry and believes these things and has this special relationship with god that entitles them to the privileges of america and american citizenship and all these things whereas other people who are not in that group are not entitled to those same things because they are not part of god's chosen people right and q promises this sort of chosen people narrative that you are the patriots you are the digital soldiers saving america 
because America is for you. I think that's an interesting sort of connection to right. our last episode and talking about how some of these myths faded out over time, but in particular groups, some of those myths that have faded out over time may still have a hold yeah. or may be regaining a hold yeah. in a way that they didn't have in the past. That's a good point. And I think that's an example of how this covenantal vision of America, Q is an example of how this covenantal vision of America has sort of regained some strength among evangelicals in particular. Yeah. And that's actually, uh, I think that's very true. And I also think that's a great point to sort of transition towards situating the Q story the q myth in the history of american politics right. and the history of american myth it's connected to our yeah. history not, um, not some unique sort of yeah discreet right. event that yeah. d- doesn't have these connections exactly and we read uh, a pretty famous article or essay by the american historian and intellectual richard hofstadter for for this week it's called the paranoid style in american politics and we're not the first people surely not the first people to you know, bring up this connection because if you read this article, it's a pretty short read. I recommend you do. It'll be in the show notes. You'll see immediately the connections between this this essay, which was written in 1964, and what's going on today. It's, it's, it's quite striking. But before we explain it, the crux is that, and as we've been sort of articulating, is that there's a reason why we see this in America. Yep and not necessarily all over the world. There right. are certain conspiracy theories in other places, but a lot of times there's a reason why these have come up in America, mm-hmm. particularly because we have a history which might be conducive to them. So why don't you just sort of explain the article to to, to get at why that is, why we see it in America in particular? Well, yeah, so Hofstadter basically posits that there is what he calls this paranoid style in American politics, right? That there's this tendency for certain sections of the population particularly when they feel that their dominant status or that the essential character of society is being threatened, they begin to imagine that there is some conspiracy at work to undermine it. And you see it throughout American history, going right, going back to our episode yesterday, right, this sort of covenantal New England myth. You had New England nativists who were very, very concerned about the influx of Catholic immigrants into the United States. They didn't want them. They were afraid that the influence of the Pope was going to come to dominate the politics of the young Republic. They were also very concerned about the effects of the French Revolution, right? Not to get too far into the history, but whereas, you know, the early American Republic was was divided between sort of Jeffersonian Democrats and New England Federalists, there was somewhat, there was more sympathy on the side of the Jeffersonian Democrats to, with um, the French Revolution. And New England Federalists really thought that the moral degeneracy was going to come through the French Revolution, that it was going to come to the United States. Um, They were very concerned about that. They were afraid of Jacobin conspiracies. The Jacobin was the far left wing of the French Revolution. They're afraid of Jacobin conspiracies and afraid of the Pope coming to be, you know, coming to involve himself in in American politics. These are two separate things, but two conspiracies are going on at the same time. Anti-Masonic conspiracies, conspiracies about the Masons controlling the government. And a a lot of this, I think... You also see very similar sentiments in the period of Reconstruction uh, after the Civil War. That's a very good with point. With films like Birth of a Nation, yeah. which I've seen part of it. And there's a scene in it basically depicting, I think it was the Mississippi State Legislature mm-hmm. or something like this. And everyone in it is black. All the representatives are black. And of course, they're, they're, they're caricatured to behave like monkeys and all kinds of insanely things, racist, yeah. awful shit. Because Birth of a Nation is a horrid despicable film but you see a very similar sentiment arising out of the south in 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 a similar situation 
where this feeling arises that this other group of people that doesn't share our identity and our our connection to the sacred mission of America right. is going to come in and destroy our politics and our way of life. Right. right. It's the exact same sentiment. Right. Right. And at the time that Hofstadter's writing, he's writing about McCarthyism and there's this and belief. Also, also, I th- also, I think in the scene from Birth of a Nation, there's like some weird suggestions that these, uh, that these black men who are representatives, there's like some small white girls around yeah. and like, basically this insinuation of of pedophilia and race mixing and, and things like this that they thought was yeah it's there's like some it's, it's a very similar accusations that you see coming out of q is right. this feeling that like these people are just morally degenerate mm-hmm. bastards who are going to destroy our way of life right. and a, yeah and rape our children right i mean that's a that's a very good point because i think going back to the earlier sort of conspiracy theories that Hofstadter talks about right there's this always this very strange sexual element i don't know exactly and i'm not qualified to get into exactly what in human psychology causes that to be sort of imposed onto these conspiracy theories but it's definitely there Uh, i was also going to say that hofstadter is writing in 1964 he's writing about mccarthyism and this belief that there's like a communist cabal in the american government controlling so there's always this belief in this cabal which has generally which frequently has characteristics of like sexual or moral degeneracy that is running the country that is, you know, at at the root cause of all these issues. So Q is, I want to get into towards the end of the episode, some what's different about, about this, about this particular story materially. But I think that it is, you see this sort of through line of reactions to times when American myths are challenged, the narratives are challenged. You see this retreat to total fantasy. And in the last episode we talked about, there's this sort of need to balance in a secular country that believes itself to be rooted in the principles of reason, a need to balance, right, the stories we tell about ourselves with, you know, what we see in front of us. But what you see in these conspiracy theories, these these myths that are, are these reactionary myths, that you see a total retreat to the realm of fantasy because there's a feeling that just, that reality has changed too much. And I think that that's a very interesting feature that exists throughout American history that isn't new. And I think part of it is because in their mind, reality has changed so much that the perception comes to be that things have changed so much to a point where it's hardly believable that any of this is real. Yeah, it couldn't be happening. And so when you've reached that point, then if it already feels unreal and unbelievable, you can come up with all kinds of fantastical stories about what's going on, and they seem equally believable because everything seems so out of whack. Right. Within its own internal logic, the next step is when reality seems to be just totally messed up, is to construct the idea of some interminably evil agent or groups of agents um, who are running the country and making everything go poorly, who have infinite control and power Hofstadter talks about this how these people that they imagine have infinite control and power and have no moral characteristics whatsoever right they're totally and completely evil and this does two things right one it suggests that they're all powerful and that's why you need to fight them and it gets up it's a motivating cause but it also justifies any action against them so that's why you would see cute people talking about all the horrible things that they would like to see happen to hillary clinton because she was part of this evil cabal in their minds right so why it's so easy to believe that the election was rigged because this would be an easy thing for these all-powerful world-ruling elite to pull off. 
which I think when you say world ruling elite, that gets to something else that I thought we should really discuss in this episode, right? Is this sort of tension between universality, the universality of these sort of cosmopolitan elite of this sort of cosmopolitan elite cabal that's ruling everything yeah. and the particular sort of Heronvoke type, you know, honest, virtuous, common people who are combating a, this this myth, right? So there's a tension between the universality of yeah. what's going on. There's always I mean, this global I mean, element <laughs> and in, in contradistinction to the virtuous common man who is rooted in his time and his place and his nation. And it's sort of this blood and soil versus cosmopolitanism. That I think yeah, and I think this is a, perhaps a particular difficulty for, there's another reason why perhaps you see this in America more strongly or more overtly than other places it's because i think there's a particular difficulty for the american myth to overcome or deal with these sorts of people and these sorts of conspiracy theories it's because in the post-world war ii era america embraced a global engagement and a belief in the universality of the liberal democratic order that it was the right regime for everywhere in the world at all times. Right. It's easy to see how that could lead to the place that we're now at, where there's this reaction against, because when we talk about political myth, we talk about a narrative that gives justification mm -hmm. for a particular regime. Right. We talk about how it obscures the origins to make it seem legitimate, or in the case of the myth of the Republic, that Socrates shares there, one of the parts of the political myth that he narrates is that the people of the city, basically the original people of the city, the founders of the city came up out of the ground there, that there is a particular tie of that regime to its place and yeah. a justification for it existing there. And when you see America sort of embrace this idea that this regime is right for everywhere, you can see how some people start to get this reactionary sentiment mm -hmm. that these people are more concerned about what's going on elsewhere than what's happening here. I think you're hitting something really important here is that, right, last week we talked about these three myths and two of them, right, we're talking about right now, this conflict between maybe the more covenantal place, particular people, particular place myth, and the creedal myth, which says that all of us are endowed by our creator, nature and nature's God, with these unalienable rights. And so that these rights exist, and as Lincoln himself said, these rights are applicable to all men at all times, in all places. Sort of an endemic tension in the American story between this particularism and this universalism that is very, I think that is that is sort of a constant feature. And if you look back through this history of these conspiracy theories, you see that even if the creedal story really sort of exploded in the years after the Second World War, it's always been part of the American story to a, a significant, if not all encompassing extent. And that the American history, I think, is a lot of ways defined by a tension between story of universal liberal rights and Americans considering themselves as a particular people. Yeah, yeah. And so when you lean into this global vision of liberal democracy, those people who believe in America as a particular, unique, and special place and idea can get this feeling that you don't believe that America is special. Right. You believe that it's just another kind of regime that can be everywhere. Right. Right. And to those that believe in the, in the unique story of the story of America as a unique and particularly virtuous place and regime. By which we mean white and Christian, or by which they mean right, white and Christian. 
yeah, there is a feeling that that's un-American, mm-hmm. that's traitorous. However, even as we see these sort of similar paranoid narratives take mm-hmm. hold throughout American history about the other, right. which is violating the sacred way or is going to violate the sacred American way of life, mm-hmm. which we've seen so many times. And as we've said, Q is not unique in that respect. Even as we do see those similarities and those similar narratives, it's worth noting just how impactful the internet is mm-hmm. in transforming the scale yeah, of those paranoid narratives. Point. Yeah. And also the accessibility to modify those narratives. Right. I mean, they're basically because, crowdsourced. Yeah. It's I mean, crazy. In, in the era of McCarthyism, sure, you had crazy people writing pamphlets and books and things like this. But, you know, there was on some level a, a deference among its adherents to this idea that there was a communist cabal right. in the government. There was some deference to, well, what is Joseph McCarthy going to say next? Who is he going to point a finger at next? Right. Like, whereas in the internet age, number one, who the hell is Q? It seems to be that it's these two guys, a father and son. Jim Watkins and his son, Ron Watkins. Yeah, that's the that's the running theory, the, yeah. the latest theory. The guys who ran 8chan. Yeah. And so they would flow logically that as you know one of the central q hubs that the guys who were running it had the ability to to, to put on the q act weird weird guys but yeah uh, what you're saying is q doesn't have that same unique authority yeah i mean it does it doesn't have that same unique authority because as it starts to as this theory that it generates or that it embodies starts to spread onto facebook you get grandma and grandpa posting where we go one we go all where we go one we go all and their own take on what's happening as informed by this conspiracy right which then enlarges the conspiracy and modifies it and you start to get all these people posting their own things waging digital war with these memes yeah (laughs) as weapons and all kinds of people are creating them and all kinds of people are shaping the narrative and so it is one, the scale is enormous yeah. because how many people the internet connect. I mean, legitimately millions of people are out there on the internet spreading, modifying, rewriting right. this this myth and they all have their own adherence and they all have their own beliefs and they're all writing their own things into their own little echo chambers. And, and so the character of these paranoid myths becomes very different yeah and when you see and maybe i'm wrong but as i understand it sort of one of the death knell moments for mccarthyism was this moment where he went after the military and that was yeah yeah joe mccarthy not a smart went after the military and we had this commander general i don't remember who i probably i don't remember exactly who it was but in in a hearing i think in the senate he replied to joe mccarthy saying at long last, sir, have you no sense of decency? And it was this televised moment that went down in history as like almost a wake-up moment where someone finally hit back, someone with a lot of credibility of his own, hit back at McCarthy and shamed him. Right. And as the figurehead of this paranoid myth, 
a, a lot of that, when that credibility comes tumbling down, a lot of the myth and its adherents come tumbling down right. too. Now, lots of people even today believe that there's a communist cabal. I mean, it's a large part of the people who believe in Q. Yep. There's some communist cabal at the heart of government, but it's very different when there's not this one public facing figure who can face scrutiny right. and retaliation for their perpetuation of certain yeah. political paranoid stories right but it's just millions of people act disaggregated across the internet who yeah. cannot be confronted directly right right and so what instead you get is social media services divorced from government accountability mm -hmm. censoring speech and banning users for saying insane shit that is going to end up for saying insane things that's going to end up motivating people to go storm the capitol building right. Yep. So in some ways, justifiable to take that action, but then it just reinforces the myth right, that there's because then now, now you have these, these, these private companies now censoring the speech because they they're, can't lose hold of the control and they want the Democrats to win because the Democrats are going to, and they're colluding with them, right? That they're all part of the same, they're all part cut from the same cloth. All so part it of the becomes same the yeah. internet allows it to sort of become an octopus these these myths turn into like octopuses with their tentacles all over everything and you can't really pin it down yeah because it's just gonna slip away somewhere else right and so it becomes it's this age of the internet just poses a lot of challenges yeah. for unifying narratives right because you have this anyone can make up anything and it can be totally completely crowdsourced right and then what's important is that you don't have the, one of the comparisons that Donald Trump makes in this piece about his censor, his supposed censorship on a platform like Twitter is he says that social media is today's town square. And so people should be able to say what they can't right. want and to bar them from participation in the town square is a violation of the First Amendment rights, whatever, blah, blah, blah. He definitely didn't write that op-ed anyways. But this claim that the internet is like the town square has one thing very wrong about it, and that is that there really isn't a marketplace of ideas on the internet in a way that conflicting ideas and narratives come into conflict with that's each a, other yeah, that's an and then point. are worked out right. and something appears more credible and something doesn't. Right. And so sure, you'll have some fringe, but most people believe the same thing. Instead, what happens is when you have conflicting narratives, they glance off each other and you can, on the internet, create silos right. of opinion yeah. and narrative and belief about the world. Right. Like you can have your message board on 8chan where everyone believes Q right. is real. That's a very good point. And serious. Yeah. And so this marketplace of ideas doesn't exist just because people are going to silo themselves off. They'll follow the people that they want to hear from on Twitter. The people that want to hear from them will follow them. And you just get all these little separate communities that don't dialogue with each other. Right. And so these insane ideas can just ramp up and spiral out of control because there's nothing to stop them yeah. when everybody's already on the same page. Right. right. So whereas you would hope that there would be some sort of like consensus narrative, right, which we can believe about ourselves. And obviously, right, we've seen that conspiracy theories abound in American history without having some sort of overarching consensus narrative. You get this like balkanization of narratives, which yeah. makes it really, I think, is 
clearly making it very hard to live in one country together. Yeah. And that's a significant challenge. That is, a, that is a very significant challenge. And that may make it, you know, more difficult, right? We talked about, you know, a mission to bring policies in line that make that sort of reinvigorate MIS. It, it, that's, a, that's a pretty significant challenge to the, to the possibility of that. Do I still think that that's our best way forward? Yes, but the challenges are myriad and we should be clear-eyed about them. Yeah, so... And on that subject, next week, we're going to be doing a wrap-up of this discussion on myth and politics. And we're going to talk about a few things, among which will be a discussion of just how possible it is that policy and material changes to people's quality of living can really reshape belief in the myth. And whether on this topic of this sort of global or universal versus particularism of liberal democracy and its myths whether there's a future for global unifying myths rather than national unifying myths and world peace. (laughs) Yeah. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing to Spectacles in Conversation. For more discussions from the editors, like Bird's Eye and Reflections, If you'd like to hear each new article of focus and insight read aloud, feel free to follow the link in the show notes to Spectacles Out Loud and subscribe there. If you'd like to leave a comment about this episode or read anything else from Spectacles, there'll be a link in the show notes to our website, where you can also sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.